Hello, everyone, and welcome to Morals and Markets, the podcast, hosted by Atlas Society senior scholar, professor of political economy at Duke University, Dr. Richard Salzman. This month, we're talking about an all too pertinent topic, collegiate cronyism. Dr. Salzman, from a professor's perspective, is going to delve into the issues we're seeing at America's public universities, namely the cronyism that occurs between the government and these universities and all of the funding that rolls in between the two. Um, We're gonna touch on the student debt crisis, how this is exasperated by the cronyism at these colleges and by the public funding, as well as proposing some solutions to the problem. So I hope you guys enjoy the session. If you do, I hope you will like, follow, subscribe, and share the podcast with your friends. If you want to join us live to partake in the question and answer portions of these discussions that we do not post here on the podcast, you can visit atlassociety.org forward slash events and register on Zoom. And with that, I'm handing things over to Richard. Thank you, Abby, and uh, thank you, David Kelly, the founder of uh, Atlas Society, for joining tonight. Um, feel free to chime in. Anyone, uh, feel free to chime in. As usual, uh, I'll give uh, an opening. Won't be as long tonight. Going to give an opening, uh, fifteen to twenty minutes on this topic. Uh, now, I refer to it as cronyism, collegiate cronyism. We often think of uh, corporate oligarchs and uh, fat cat Wall Street types as recipients of special government favors, but uh, when you think about it. It happens in the collegiate realm as well. And um, I thought I would talk about this tonight because in uh, late August, the president, the White House launched a debt relief, debt forgiveness, however you wanna describe it, plan for student loans. And I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to explain it a little bit, give some historical context to why the US government is even in a position to do this. Why is it in the student loan business, so to speak. Um, so I'll give you a little uh, context there. But it, it is cronyism. It is a form of favoritism. It is a form of special favors to a particular group. And in that regard, especially on the eve of the midterm elections, could be interpreted as gross pandering to a youth vote, actually, that probably is in the Democratic category any, anyway. But this uh, forgiveness and forestalling of debt service by student loans uh, was already begun, if you don't know, in the COVID legislation. So vast powers were given to the executive branch through the education department. By the way, the education department wasn't even formed until 1979. That'll give you some history here, but got heavily involved in lending uh, since uh, the Clinton years in 1990. But I consider this both an immoral and impractical policy. Uh, the whole idea of government even being involved in lending of any sort to any group for any purpose is an improper purpose of government, an improper function of government, not consistent with a capitalist system. So let me just say right off the top, these things should have entirely be privatized. Uh, it's not that student loans themselves are not a legitimate uh, form of financing. It should just be a private sector thing. And it had once been almost entirely a private sector thing until the government took it over. So this has a very nefarious uh, effect uh, as I'll elaborate upon. Now, just on the details of it <clears throat> overall, uh, student loans in America are something like 1.7 trillion. Now, 12 years ago, it was half that. So a doubling of loans in just a decade is really quite amazing. So it was something like 800 billion in 2010. Now it's 1.78 trillion. 
1.8 trillion, I think. And uh, this loan quote forgiveness is 10,000 10, for those who make less than 125,000 a year single and less than 250,000 a year in a household, married in a household. But I, I checked the numbers and it pertains to something like 86% of all borrowers, the student borrowers. And, and so it's an enormous giveaway in a way to these people. Uh, so 10,000 for the first group, 20,000 for the second. It's unclear as yet whether that is going to be taxable income. That's a more of a technical thing, but, but usually when loans are forgiven, they're conferred as gifts and gifts are taxed and they're trying to get away with not having these recipients tax, uh, pay taxes uh, either. Um, some of the objections to this are weak and not philosophical. As an example, well, it only goes to elites. It only goes to those fraction of people who go to college. You know, what about all the people who don't go to college? And notice the underlying premise as if it would be okay if it were more in an egalitarian forgiveness. So that's one point. The other point is someone will say, well, it's very, very costly. The, the Biden administration originally said this would amount to $250 billion. Uh, a week later, someone estimated, no, it's actually $500 billion. And then the Wharton School came out and said, no, it's actually a trillion dollars. Well, this is typical of any kind of government spending program, in this case, a debt relief program. Yes, it'll be a gargantuan cost. And that's a objection, but the biggest objection we should be making is moral. When you borrow money, you should be obligated, if you can, if you have the ability to pay it, to pay it back. It is just immoral to engage in what might be called predatory borrowing. And uh, But especially when the government is involved and it's making taxpayers basically finance and subsidize other people's borrowings, it's it's wholly improper. And And by the way, as improper as government bailouts of Wall Street for the too big to fail doctrine that we saw lead to Occupy Wall Street protests in 2010. Well, notice there are no Occupy, you know, the Department of Education protests now that this is going on, but is it no less of a giveaway? Is it no less of a, a bailout in this case of, well, no one's gonna complain because who's gonna, who's gonna criticize uh, college students. Now, let me just mention briefly, I am in academia, so I have to be objective about this. It also does benefit the colleges. I mean, to the extent they are getting payments from students through tuitions and other things, uh, any kind of government financing of this indirectly benefits them and any kind of debt forgiveness by government indirectly benefits them. And one of the major problems we've had in the last 50 years is that the government first looks at, this started, started happening by the way in the mid 60s, it first starts looking at, wow, those tuitions are, are expensive. Oh, they, the price of college is going up. It's uh, becoming less affordable, so we need to subsidize. And what happens when they start subsidizing? There is no pressure for cost containment. And it leads to an inflation of the thing being spent on. So if you just look at a chart of say, cost of tuitions, uh, relative to cost of uh, you know a basket of goods CPI. Last time I checked, since 1980, the cost of tuitions and books and education has gone up eightfold relative to CPI. So eight times as much as the rise in the general price level. That could not have happened uh, in a fully free market. So so part of the problem here is there is also a kind of cronyism going on where the 
the college administrations and the recipients of tuitions themselves are our cronies and our, our recipients of this. Now, uh, a little history. Uh, uh, and by the way, this is similar to what's happened in housing. It's similar to what happened in healthcare. Interestingly, most of this began in the mid 60s, all three education, housing, healthcare. We know in healthcare that Medicare and Medicaid were instituted in the mid 60s. Uh, and in each case, we find the same principle. Someone identifies a real human need for education, healthcare, and housing. So no one denies that, but it's claimed that there's some kind of market failure, or it's claimed in some way that these are public goods that the government, that the markets fail in some way, either to provide the goods, which is silly, or to provide the goods in an affordable way, which is sometimes the case at a very fractional level. But instead of leaving this process to voluntary private charity, the government gets more involved. And the pattern is first they subsidize it, then the prices of the things get inflated, then they subsidize it still more, then people get in over their heads, whether it's through mortgages for housing or healthcare bills, or in this case, education. So. Uh, I just want to look at this in a, in a principled way, not in an isolated way, that the same principle is operating, and we all know what happened with the mortgage housing crisis in 08, 09, same kind of principle, years and years of the government saying this is a necessary thing, we're going to finance it for people who can't afford it. We're going to try to defy reality and make everyone own a house, have everyone own a house, even if they can't afford it. It's an unsustainable uh, financial transaction. And uh, when the whole thing falls apart, no one really blames it on government uh, intervention. Now, it wasn't until 1965, we looked this up, the Federal Family Education Loan Program. It was the first time the federal government really got involved in uh, financing or backstopping loans to students. Now, there was uh, a market for student loans in the private banking system prior to this. So it was not as if people did not get student loans, but you can imagine if you were a student, you went into a bank or a savings and loan at the time and made a case for the degree you were getting and made a case for the career you might have. And it would be perfectly rational for a bank to make a loan saying, well, you're gonna pay it back with the income you earn after you graduate. And it is true uh, that those who get uh, ever higher degrees tend to make ever higher incomes. So it's, again, back to the principle, it's not as if private lending for this kind of thing cannot go on, but it is not sustainable when the government starts getting involved in it, and it did starting in 1965. Now, if you look at the data, and it's easily retrievable, by the way, at the Fed, Federal Reserve publishes all this data, there is a close correspondence between the increasing government subsidy of higher education, college education, and tuition costs. So it's uh, it's the subsidies chasing the price or cost of the thing and the whole thing getting completely out of hand uh, and to the point of it being unsustainable uh, for many students leading to things like, well, we now need to debt forgive. Now we need to cancel the debts. Now, uh, not to go through all the gory history here, but the Department of Education, I said earlier, was started in 1979. So there had not even been a federal education department until then. And that proved to be uh, another case where the government got more and more involved, not only in education regulation, not only in the kind of bureaucratic bloat that has grown up in colleges and universities 
but in the backstopping and funding of student loans. Now, interestingly, uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, you'll remember those names. They're still around, but they're not in the headlines anymore. Those were the government agencies that promoted uh, mortgage borrowing. And uh, people forget that there was another one called Sally Mae. Oh, they love putting names on these things that sound so quaint. But Sally Mae was the Student Loan Marketing Association. Guess when that was started? 1973. So you see that these are, now that's 50 years ago, but these are fairly recent government involvement in the financing of colleges, colleges in America that have been around for centuries. But this phenomenon is a last 50 year, 60 year phenomenon. And that is largely, I would say, the, the cause of the inflation uh, we've seen, the hyperinflation, if you will, we've seen in, in college costs. Now, very significantly in 2010, when student loans, as I said before, only totaled 800 billion, which was a lot, it was nationalized. The Obama administration nationalized student loans and to the point today where 92% of student loans in America are owed to the US government. And uh, that really went under the radar because at the time, 2010, if you look back to that, everyone was debating Obamacare. Well, it was a provision thrown into Obamacare at the last minute. And no one really thought of it, but basically the U.S. government through the education department took over substantially all the private student loans and made itself the lender. And that is precisely why when people scratch their heads today and say, how can the president get up and start talking about debt relief or start, or start uh, suspend, say, debt service during COVID as he did? The reason is the government had taken over the student loans. So now if, if you know what nationalization means, if you nationalize any industry, that is socialism. Uh, socialism is uh, government ownership of the means of production. Here, it's uh, not the entire banking system, of course, it's not the entire financial system, but it is a, a 1.8 trillion in loans is no small number. The total national debt is something like 30 trillion. So, but uh, that is what happened. And, um, the argument that the government would be the sole lender, let alone any kind of lender, the student loan market, is very interesting because you could see it potentially as lending to a politically dedicated group that once the government gets control of the finances of this thing, that it in effect, uh, and from any party might conclude this, Democrat or Republican, that you now have a special interest group on your side, dedicated, you know, like you would with Social Security or other things, very interested now in kowtowing to government and and lobbying government um, just as the elderly might in the case of social security. Um, <clears throat> I think I'll stop there. I, um, as I said before, I always like to say something about the cure for this. I find that uh, for my own sake actually, and for most people who advocate liberty and limited government, uh, there's a lot of reporting on how bad things are, and there's a lot of and there's a lot of bad things out there. But the idea of merely describing, merely reporting, merely conveying, you know, how terrible everything is without come some kind of suggestion of of a remedy or of a cure uh, is insufficient. Now, it, I mean, it's easy for me to just say in a sweeping way, privatize the whole thing, but at least we can point to the history of when it was largely private when schools were largely more responsible in their pricing 
when students were more careful as a result of whether it was worth even getting a college degree. There's lots of debate today about whether, not just whether the cost of degrees is inflated and sustainable, but whether people should be going to college. So that the whole related problem of, uh, quote unquote, too many people going to college uh, and not really benefiting by it, they're doing it because it's easier uh, to pay for it when you're getting subsidized. The, the whole thing should be wound down, even if it's done gradually over time, um, to, so people can plan. But I, I believe, as, as in all issues related to government lending, the government should not be in the lending business. It's a private sector function. The argument uh, it should be made as a moral one as well. It is immoral to be using the government and using force and using taxpayers to borrow uh, for your own purposes. This should be a private thing entirely. It isn't an issue of class warfare in terms of elites or not. If you want to go there, it is obviously quite obvious that uh, that wealthier families don't really get student loans anyway. And they're basically choosing to subsidize lower income kids in colleges because they either give to the college endowments or they're the ones who pay the top ticket price for the tuitions. Uh, most students and families do not pay the sticker price, so to speak. They pay a fraction of it. And the question is, how is that possible? Because universities price discriminate. They charge more for wealthier people. So the, the idea that in a private sector system, the uh, lower income would not have access to the system is no less true in higher education than it is in the K through 12. So I'll leave it there. I think this is a very bad move. I think it's uh, unfortunately electorally more popular than people think. Um, but uh, I just wanted to bring it to your attention and uh, see if we can talk about aspects of this and, and getting back to a more capitalist uh, education system. All right, well, we have Lawrence raised his hand. We have one question in the chat. So Lawrence, you wanna start us off? Hi, Richard. So uh, my question is, when we look at, at least when we look at K through 12, always a big talking point is student or, or our teachers unions and the amount of power they wield and how, as someone who has relatives who went into teaching, they kept getting shuffled around. It was really hard for them to actually get fired. It, it, it didn't happen. They just kept getting shuffled around. And it makes me wonder if there's a similar issue, perhaps that you think on the college level when it comes to um, tenure, which seems to become a far more politicized issue. And it's where they say they're going to funnel more money into that. But then people who can actually get it have to, you know, abide by certain guidelines but then after that they're set so to speak so do you think that those play a role in perhaps more uh corruption even at the uh higher level when it comes to stuff like tenure well that's a good question i'm not sure i would refer to it as as corruption but more as unaccountability and you make an interesting point because there could be an analogy made between the two unionization at k-12 tenure in the sense that it immunizes people from being held accountable for bad behavior or just negligence or just you know lack of scholarship or lack of you know engaging in indoctrination instead of education. Um, now on the public school side, of course, I, I want no government involvement in K through 12 at all. That thing should be entirely privatized as well. But I would say, Lawrence, in 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 
in the period until it is, I think it's also proper to take the step of no unions in uh, public goods. So now, notice Reagan did that when it came to the air traffic controllers that went on strike in 1982. I think Coolidge as governor of Massachusetts was the first to name the principal when the police went on strike. And you know there is no right to strike against the public or something like that. Now, so, so we, we should stand up for the right to not work if you're in the private sector. But once you're working for the government, the idea that there should be a union holding up the taxpayers who, who are really not at the other end of the table when you're negotiating um, is improper. So I think we need get to get a two-stage step here would be if you work for the government, you can't be in a union. And the next step is you shouldn't be working for the government anyway, because that's not a proper government function to have schools. Now, tenure is interesting because uh, David will know more about this than I did, having been in academia for many years. Uh, I don't have tenure at Duke. I sign multi-year contracts. So in a way, I am more accountable than tenured people would be. But, but let's not forget that people who gain tenure usually do demonstrate a track record of publishing an accomplishment and so it's not something that's just given out uh, without earning it. Now, what's interesting is when I looked into the history of tenure, it originally began almost 100 years ago with a concern on the part of pro professors that the trustees were in, uh, involved in and trying to uh, influence their teaching. Now, what's interesting about this is this was during the progressive era, quote unquote, so in other words, the early 1900s and the progressive era, if you knew, if you know, was a movement toward more left wing politics and including that left, more left wing academic departments, especially in the social sciences. But think of that time also, the trustees would be wealthy, uh, uh, you know, uh, business people or others who at that time would be way more pro-capitalist than the kind of industrialists and financiers you would get today. So at places like the University of Chicago and elsewhere, the trustees were beginning, the more capitalist-leaning financiers and trustees of universities were beginning to notice and, and see left-wing teaching from professors. So the professors joined together and argued for academic freedom. That's how far back this goes. And, and they basically said, we should be able to teach whatever we want and you sh shouldn't be able to pull you know, strings uh, based on your financing. So that was the origin actually of tenure. And it was very similar to the kind of movement that existed in the civil service at the time. Civil service meant all those uh, non-elected government officials who ran the agencies. And until that same period, there had been widespread patronage Patronage meaning every time a new administration came in, they'd fire the old and put in their buddies and put in their friends. Well, civil service legislation was the idea of immunizing government bureaucrats from political changeovers. So notice how that was similar to immunizing college professors from getting fired when uh, trustees came in. So, so just it's interesting. That's the origin of it. I, I, tenure, interestingly, has been on the decline in the last couple decades. Uh, for various reasons, but um, I, I, as long as that is a private thing where the universities decide that that is a way to attract professors, um, I, I don't consider that a particular problem. I do consider teacher unions in K-12 government schools as a really big problem. David, I don't know if you have a different take on that. David Kelly. Um, <clears throat> let me just uh, 
jump back so you can see as well as hear me. Yeah, I, uh, <clears throat> it's been a long time since I worked in the academic world, uh, but it was a tenured um, world. That, that is, there were gradations you came up for tenure at a certain point after, at Vassar College where I was teaching, it was after, I think, in my case, eight years. Um, <clears throat> and I didn't get tenure. So um, I, I had an interesting meeting with the president um, afterwards, after the decision and said, oh, okay, I've been pretty explicit about my political views. Um, and was that a factor? And she said, no, no, we really wanted a, she didn't put it this way, but a token libertarian, that would be nice on our faculty. It would help with the trustees. But um, there is tenure like every other aspect of academic life, even back then, and this is, goes back to the eighties, was being influenced by cultural trends. We've got to hire women. We've got to hire minorities. We've got to, um, et cetera, et cetera. I know, I'm pretty sure that was relevant in my case because you know I'm uh, in the hated class of white males. Um, and the, uh, you know, I, I, I won't say it was all that, it was a factor, but um, anyway, I've, I've always been opposed to tenure. I don't, I don't understand why everyone should not be working on the terms you are, Richard. Uh, hire me, if, I do good, if you want to keep me after five years or two years or whatever the term is, fine. If I'm happy with you and you're happy with me, I'll stay. Otherwise, sayonara. Yeah, and David, I, I've, having come from the corporate world uh, 10 years ago, it was always, uh, what's it called, employment at will. Employment at will was, uh, you yeah. know, every day, every day you went into work, you know, you were still hired and, you know, until they fired you, if they were going to fire you. There was, unless you're up into the echelons of high pay and CEO suite, there were not contracts, written out contracts, multi-year contracts, that kind of thing. You had annual reviews, you obviously had a particular salary and job functions and things like that. So when I went to academia at a late age, in the, my late 40s, I knew I wouldn't get tenure. I knew it was too late to to get tenure. So I, I actually considered something like a multi-year contract is quite amazing, David. I thought, wow, multi-year contracts? That's, uh, I'm not used to that. I've never seen that before. Um, but yeah, it's now, sometimes I'm asked, do you feel like you're in a more precarious position because you don't have tenure? I guess so, but who cares? In a way, <laughs> I, don't, I don't care. Someone, someone a decade ago or so, a couple of people said to me, okay, if you're in this classification of old white male pro-liberty, uh, not a not a prized intersectional these days. Uh, you have to be um, more productive, more conscientious, friendlier, uh, more benevolent in the department, uh, collegial. It is called college after after all. <laughs> it's not always easy, but um, no, there's of course there's no guarantees and. Uh, but maybe because I came from a competitive, you know, financial sector, I thought, well, you earn this uh, every day anyway, so just earn it. And if someone wants to do something arbitrary to you, if someone wants to, you know, unilaterally uh, ostracize you or bounce you for something stupid, that's not me. That's on them. Um, anyway, but it's riskier. I guess it's riskier. I, I must say also, though, I guess it depends on what university you're at. The tenured professors I know still work hard. So that old adage about once they get tenure, they 
uh, don't work as hard. I haven't found that. I have not noticed that. Some of the more, some of the most conscientious work ethic uh, professors I know have had tenure for years. So for them, it's an issue of pride. It's an issue of uh, you know just conscientiousness about their career and their and they love the life of the mind. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure that's true at every university, but that's what I've noticed so far. Well, Richard, just a, a final thought on this. Um, yeah. I've noticed that too in many, many cases. I mean, if you spend all the years getting a PhD and then working yeah. as a junior professor, yeah, um, just to stay the course until the tenure decision comes along, yeah, you got to have something invested in the uh, in the topic in your in your discipline. But yeah. I also would say that um, you know, cronyism. Um, we talk about crony capitalism in involving government um, and business or in, in tonight, government and education, but the crony attitude uh, operates within private institutions too, as you well know. Um, and one thing that I've always thought about tenure is that the uh, it's, it's kind of a, um, Greenspan used to call penny in the fuse box. It, 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 it removes the incentive that a college has to hire the best at any level, at any, um, and, and so, and, there are, and that is connected with a lot of office politics, academic politics, um, as is any organization, I'm sure any large corporation has that going on too, but at least they have the incentive. If you can't add to the value of our product, Ultimately, it will work against you. In, in education, that, that incentive has been mainly removed, partly by tenure, but uh, other factors too. So, cronyism is a moral um, issue as well as a political one. The other one I've noticed, David, is you know, there's a distinction between what they call the research universities and the liberal arts colleges. So the research universities are producing PhDs and also teaching undergrads. But those professor and Duke is an example of that, a research R1, they call them. And so those kind of professors are expected and hired because they both publish and teach mm. oh, both. And the publishing part is supposed to be, well, they're at the cutting edge of research, therefore they should be, you know, better professors, all else equal. Whereas the liberal arts ones are just teaching and it's a little more passive in the sense of they're teaching whatever the new ideas are or the old ideas. And uh, I have found that in the research institutions, if you can choose to research more and teach less, uh, you know, then they'll do that and or have the TAs teach. And so a lot of times students will come to university and they see these star professors and then they wonder why they never get these star professors in class. <laughs> and the reason is the, the class is turned over to TAs, which means teaching assistants. They're basically uh, uh, in process PhD students. They're like apprentices. Uh, I've used TAs, but I also still teach. So um, that, that kind of thing goes on as well. You make a good point, David, actually about cronyism. I think in the private sector, having been in the private sector, you, you might say uh, I found nepotism in a particular company I worked in, but it was smaller and middle size. So nepotism here meaning, you know, hiring family members, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they may have been semi, and I noticed it, it really hurt the company. Now in the big institutions I was in, like at Citicorp, 
it wasn't so much nepotism, but what used to be called, you know, the old boys network. How did you get a job at Citicorp? It wasn't just an issue of what your resume was, but, you know, did you go to the Ivy League schools? And when you went to the Ivy League schools, did you know someone, you know, through the alumni office? So that kind of thing happens, but uh, those companies can't get away with hiring people who are unqualified. It's just more an issue of what, what do they call today? Networking. You know, if you can network your way into a job and we tell Duke students that, and I'm sure Harvard, Yale does the same thing. Use the alumni office, try to get uh, Duke people who already have jobs in finance, go talk to them try to get, and is it an easier way to get in than if your family has no connections? Yes, it's easier. But if, if that's what you mean by cronyism, I guess that does occur. I don't know if it totally, I don't know if it corrupts uh, the private sector in the way that here, I think of cronyism as government favors to special groups, special interest groups, but I hear what you're saying. Well, that's it for this episode of Morals and Markets, the podcast. I want to thank you all for joining us. Again, if you liked this content, I hope that you will share it with your friends, like, follow, and subscribe to the podcast. Additionally, uh, again, if you want to join us live, that's the fourth Tuesday of every month. You can check it out on atlassociety.org forward slash events. Also, if you have a topic that you'd like to hear Dr. Salzman discuss or you have any questions relating to one of the episodes that you've listened to, you can feel free to reach out to me. I'm Abby Beringer, Student Programs Manager for the Atlas Society. You can reach me at abby, A-B-B-I-E, at atlassociety.org via email. So with that being said, thank you all again for joining us and I hope you will tune in next month.